Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode five of the Tezcast, the Tezos podcast. My name is Kevin Marabi. This is a long-awaited episode for many reasons, many things changing in the world of Tezos, many things changing in the world, elephant in the room, COVID-19, coronavirus. One thing on that, you can actually earn some Tez. Friend of the show, Johan Tanzer, uh, he put up a fundraiser where you can actually donate computing resources like you would mining or baking, and basically you donate your computing resource as a computational utility for this project that helps work out a cure for COVID-19. So I think that's pretty awesome. Uh, you can earn some Tez while doing it. Uh, the link is in the show notes. So have at it and uh, do it for a good cause and earn some Tez. Also in this episode, we're going to be talking to Adrian Brink. Adrian is a developer on Tezos Core. What that means is the last few core proposals that were adopted into the blockchain Adrian himself has had his hands working on it. Uh, and that's a big deal because really uh, you're only talking about a few firms that are involved in that right now. You have Nomadic Labs in France, you have Cryptium Labs, and you have Dai Lambda, which I didn't know about until Adrian told me about this podcast. I put those links in the show notes. So I first met Adrian back a year ago when I went to Zug, Switzerland, I was there for the Zug meetup, the first ever Zug Tezos meetup. Uh, and I had lunch with uh, Ryan Jesperson, Awa Sunyin, and Adrian Brink. And that was the first time I met any of those three. And we all, all four of us had lunch together. So it was a really great experience. I mean, these people are just so kind and so giving and so generous. They really believe in the system. They really believe in the movement of what's going on here. They really believe in Tezos. And Adrian, he's a guy who just lives by his ideals. I mean, this is just one of the kindest people. I'm really glad that we have someone of his character working on the core. Adrian, Awa, I mean, it's just amazing. And also, on that note, I want to say something about Ryan Jesperson, because Ryan Jesperson also announced that he is stepping down as president of the Tezos Foundation. Now, if you're new to Tezos, you might not know the story behind how Ryan Jesperson got to that position, but I sh I'll run it down for you really quick. A uh, few years ago, the first head of the foundation was this guy, Johan Gevers, uh, Arthur Brightman, the, the initial... Uh, people coming into the Tezos project. I mean, they, they all really liked him, but it turned out over time we learned and discovered things about him that were not as desirable. Uh, and it appeared that he was going to be spending the $232 million generated in the crowd sale for projects of his own devisements, not for the Tezos community, not through ecosystem grants in the way that Ryan has so wonderfully uh, been administering for the past couple of years. Um, so, I, you know, it was a very hard time. I mean, people were suing the foundation, saying they want their money from the crowd sale back. You had other people saying, I mean, there were, it, was, it went a bit too far. I mean, people were giving him death threats on Reddit. Johan uh, Gevers, he wasn't going to go anywhere. He wasn't budging. He didn't care what anyone was saying. He was in that position. There was really no way to get him out. He commanded $232 million, and there was really nothing we could do about it until the community banded together Good, good souls in the community, grassroots, online, got together, and they formed the T2 Foundation. The T2 Foundation. And on the board of that, you had the Brightmans, uh, you, had, uh, you had Ryan Jesperson, Jonas was there, 
uh, really great people in the Tezos community. Many of them are active today. Now, of the T2 Foundation, Ryan was elected, chosen by the community to be the leader. So Ryan Jesperson was president of that nascent brand new organization, T2 Foundation. I guess the idea would have been to challenge, probably in courts, the Tezos Foundation for who has the rights to this amount in crowdfunding. Uh, but I mean, Johan Gevers, as soon as that happened, he did not want to be a part of this. So he saw the writing on the wall and he bailed. Uh, the very next day, the very next day, he, he, he resigned. And then Ryan Jesperson became president of the Tezos Foundation. And not only did he do a phenomenal job at really liberating the Tezos project from the hands of someone who would threaten it and, and just this overall existential threat, but also in his tenure as president, he was able to institute measures that would prevent a Johann Gevers situation from arising again. And I think that's a wonderful thing. This is what makes him so heroic. I mean, this is, this is something that I feel we should honor and thank Ryan Jesperson for. Not to mention, it's been a thankless job. Anything anyone is impatient or unhappy about or this or that, they'll just go straight and start trashing Ryan online. Poor guy. I mean, it's, not, it's nothing to do with him. He's doing an actually an incredible job. It's just when you're the head of something, you become the person who gets uh, the most criticism. You know, everything kind of centers on you. But Ryan, bless his heart, endured through it all and got us to where we are today. I'm excited to see his next move. I am. So a lot's changed in the world of Tezos as well. The price of Tez has gone up, definitely. Uh, it's out there in the top 10. Uh, you know, a lot of people now are starting to give Tezos a second look who once wrote it off before. And more importantly, they're starting to see why it's doing so well, why this is not a flash in the pan. What is it about the fundamentals of Tezos that makes the price so resilient and makes it so strong as a utility overall? Why its future is so bright? Why so many projects are building on top of Tezos? So that's all still happening now. We've seen the volume of Tezos transactions skyrocket. A year ago, we weren't even talking about, you know, five million or even a million some days in volume transactions and trading volume. We weren't listed on many exchanges. Uh, and you know, it, it was just a very slow time of growth. Now we're at hundreds of millions of dollars a day in trading volume. Uh, it just keeps going up. It's a nice, steady growth curve. Uh, and so it's something to be proud of. But also hedge funds, private equity firms, those that invest in crypto assets, who maybe have an index of 10 or something crypto assets, they're giving Tezos a second look as well, too. Those firms, those individuals, are starting to say, hey, it's out in the top 10. This is pretty good. It's, it's hanging out there. It's doing fine. And they're starting to add them into their list of assets that they either keep in a long-term index or they just trade daily. Uh, and that's also helping to compound the growth of the volume. Now, on the other end, and this is something that's very important because we get into it in the conversation with Adrian. It's not all we talk about, but it's some of what we talk about. It's that institutions like exchanges, Coinbase, OKX, Kraken, Binance, KuCoin, Gate.io, CoinOne, these exchanges list Tezos. You can buy Tezos on these exchanges, but they also have institutional stakers. 
They do that because they want you to keep your funds within that place, within that portal that you bought in. Keep custody with them. Keep your custody on that exchange. So the baking services in the Tezos community that have been running baking services for years, they charge maybe like a 10% fee, 12% fee, something like that. But for these institutional bakers, like Coinbase, like Binance, like Kraken, like all the others you can name, and more and more will come, by the way, they don't really care about making money from a delegation service fee. In fact, that's negligible to the amount of money they make from custody management. So if you're staking with them, like if you're staking with Binance, sure, you get 0% fees because they want you to stake with Binance because doing so means you have to give them custody. That's not the case with independent baking services, with community baking services. But for these exchanges, they want your custody. They plan on borrowing against the assets under custody, derivatives, plenty of different banking options and instruments they can do once they have custody. So the little bit that they get from a staking fee that a baker would get, they don't really care about that, which is why they eat the costs and they charge 0% fees. Now that really sucks for the independent baker, for the community baker. And to say that, oh, we should kind of philosophically teach people that they should be staking with these community bakers instead of these large custodial bakers. Well, that's not really a winning solution, I'd say, because in the long run, the reality is people like having simplified, low friction, one login accounts for everything. Most people, most people. And definitely there will be people who will peel away from those exchanges and we'll be able to cite anecdotally people we know who have done that, maybe from our own individual convincing and persuading of them. But by and large, come on, let's face it. Anybody who gets into crypto assets, digital assets for the first time, they start learning all the things they can do. And their first question is always, yeah, but can I do that on Coinbase? Can I do that on Coinbase though? They don't wanna leave. They don't wanna add more stuff. They don't wanna have more wallets to log into. So the solution though is not to take apart these uh, institutional exchanges. I mean, they're just doing what they need to do. But what we need to do as a community is adapt to the fact that these institutions are going to want to retain custody, but maybe come up with another way in which they can satisfy their baking needs, namely, to delegate their baking to the community of Tezos bakers. Now, what I mean by that is not by delegating to a single baker, because for one thing, no baker has the capacity that something like Coinbase or Binance needs, and not splitting up the amounts manually and delegating to many, many different bakers, because that adds more friction, but instead, what if there were a tiered solution in which they delegate to one key, but that one key is an agent, really, for many, many different bakers under its particular collective? And we can call that collective a bake pool. So why would they do this? Well, there are many reasons. I mean, if you are a large institutional baker, like Coinbase or Binance, you don't really want to have a central point of failure in which you have your own bakers and then they manage everything, you don't want the liability, the PR liability that comes with having to be thought of in the same breath as 
voting decisions for the blockchain for protocol upgrades. No, 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 no. You don't want to have anything to do with that. You don't want to get caught in that mess. That's not what you do. You just want to take a picks and shovels approach, stay out of the inside baseball matters of the Tezos community, of the blockchain community, whichever blockchain it is. They want to be agnostic in that sense. So, I mean, outsourcing is a great option, but the problem is, take Coinbase right now. They have over 60 million Tez in custodial delegation. It's nearing 70 million. That's like 10% of all Tez. They don't want that responsibility. They do want the custody, though. So there's a way they can have the custody and doing what they want to do, but also being able to delegate baking services towards the larger community. But the problem is no one has the capacity for 60 million Tez in their individual baker. Very few. I don't think anyone does. I don't think any baker has that level of capacity. So they'd have to either chop it up themselves and delegate towards multiple bakers, which is a whole mess in itself, or there could be a more streamlined, automated way of doing this. So that's what brought about my idea for Bakepool. Uh, and I put a link in the show notes, bakepool.org. It's an open source nonprofit community project for the ecosystem. And the idea essentially uh, looks at alliance theory and it looks at collective bargaining power as economic concepts. The thing is, you can get enough bakers together to bake 60 million Tez, to have to take on delegation of 60 million Tez, but you have to bring them together. So what a bake pool is and what bake pools are, it's three things really. For one thing, it enables independent baking nodes to come together with other independent baking nodes in a self-organized collective and to pool together their capacities so that they can process large orders. Now on the other end, it enables for delegators, for those who are delegating their tests, to delegate towards a bake pool as opposed to the end baker, which is the way to do it now. And that way, if they have a very large order, they can get something processed that's larger than any one of those bakers could necessarily handle. And so it's just an easier system for them to process. It's better for customers. Secondly, it enables those bakers to receive the delegation orders in an equitable fashion. Now, the distribution mechanism, the combinatorial matching engine, that's modular. That can be changed and adapted and upgraded over time. The third element is the functions of a DAO, so that the governance of each individual bake pool is set to the particular stylings that that bake pool administration would like. So instead of having a single key that does everything for the service, for the baking delegation service, the baking delegation service has many different admin roles using multisig. Now, Cryptium Labs has been doing their own project, and Bakepool is a wholly separate project from that. But it's interesting how I'm noticing some overlap and how what Cryptium has been doing is actually advancing and getting us closer towards that Bakepool vision. What Cryptium Labs has been doing has been to advance that third part so that different people within a single baker could have many different roles and functions and permissions based on their key. Uh, where Bakepool is a bit different is that it's talking not just about decentralizing the baker itself, but for to re-envision the concept of a baking delegation service as not necessarily synonymous with a single baker, but many different bakers coming together. 
And then we have a sort of an agency relationship in which the bake pool is like a dispatch. You know, you could be a truck driver, an independent owner-operator of your own trucking service, but that doesn't mean you're booking your jobs. That doesn't mean you're making those connections between all the different clients all over the country or wherever you're doing your trucking. No, you rely on an agency. So in this interview, Adrian talks about his background. He gets into some of the upgrades that have been going on in Tezos through now and things he'd like to see, changes to the protocol that he'd like to see, his suggestions, and stuff he'd like to explore a bit more. So now a little uh, caveat to this interview. Uh, at the time, Adrian had been talking about programmable staking and baking accounts, enhancing baking accounts as two different pathways that they might take on uh, going forward. Uh, it looks like they're taking on the enhancing baking accounts as opposed to the full-blown programmable staking. Uh, but definitely these are two areas of great exploration. So I think it'll be very interesting uh, to listen to both ends of it. Okay, without further ado, stay safe. And here is the interview with Adrian Brink. So we're here with Adrian Brink, core developer, CTO of Cryptium Labs, coder extraordinaire, developer extraordinaire. So Adrian, tell us about yourself. Tell us about the man. What is your origin story? <laughs> uh, let me start by saying those are your words, not mine. I, well, my background lies in computer science. Um, and I got interested in blockchains mostly because, um, so I was remotely aware of them, but when the Catalan independence referendum happened, um, I was sort of in the preparatory phases for my master thesis, for my graduate thesis. Um, and I ended up writing it on building decentralized voting applications on censorship resistant platforms. Um, because it, it was sort of a cool idea, right? At the time to think about how could you hold democratic referendums uh, that are unstoppable by any government, because given that most of our national ID cards have private keys embedded in them, it's relatively possible to build voting systems that are completely censorship resistant against the government that issued these ID cards, uh, which results in sort of an interesting property. Because if 90% of a country want to do A, um, if they all know that the other 90% want to do A with them, there's nothing that will prevent A from happening. Like no amount of military will ever prevent, protect this. So this is how I got into blockchains and interest in this entire space. So it, it started um, with this this uh, obsession with decentralization and creating something unstoppable because it's distributed yeah, with technology. Yeah, exactly. Censorship-resistant voting, to be precise. Um, and then, of course, censorship-resistant finance is also cool, um, but sort of censorship-resistant voting seemed like a very like real-world use case that people needed at the time. Um, but anyway, so that's how I got started. Then I worked for a little bit, or actually quite a long while, on Tenement Consensus and um, Cosmos Proof of Stake. Um, and from there on out, uh, our Chris and I set up a validation company uh, called Cryptium Labs. And then we set up a validator. I'll assume you and Christopher goes, your co-founders in uh, Exactly, in my Labs. co-founders. 
Yeah, so we set up Proofstream Labs initially actually as a pure validation company. Um, but it turned out that validation, albeit interesting at first, is really probably not the most interesting business model long term. Because in the end, you're just like racking servers and data centers, which like the first time you do it and the second time you do it and the third time you do it is interesting. But so the 30th time you do it, it gets old at some point. Um, and since we all came from this protocol engineering background, we thought, well, how can we actually help Tezos? Um, because we were a rather um, not big at the time on Tezos. And so we looked at it and was like, cool, um, we have experience in core protocol development. Um, let's get into that. And this is really how we started the company and um, it grew from there. So that was, uh, so you got into core development, you went from baking to core development around some point in 2019. Like we went there very early because I don't know if people remember in like the very early days, like cycle eight, nine, 10, up until 20, like probably it's like 100. There weren't really that many resources that explained how Tezos proof of stake worked under the hood. Um, and so we took it upon ourselves to dive into code base, understand what's going on, and then write articles to explain to people how Tezos actually worked. Um, for example, what does it mean that people double bake? Uh, what actually happens? How do you calculate the security deposit? So a lot of the things that by now we treat as a given, um, really in the early days weren't very well documented or explained to the like for the general public. And this is how we got into protocol development. Uh, like very shortly after launch, actually, we started mostly by uh, explaining the implementations to people. Um, and at that point, I was like, well, this is a cool code base. Let's uh, help on improving it. And so the very obvious first thing we picked was uh, let's let's remove this weird restriction that implicit accounts, which has you one, two, or three, aren't delegatable. Um, because this is like, an, in my opinion, my personal opinion, like, and not a great UX for most people because you had to explain to them that they need to create this like strange smart contract and they now had to understand two different address types. Um, yeah. Yeah. And you're right. There were no, there were a lot of times I, I would look up a concept and you were the only guys writing about them at the time. We always try to look into areas where we can have the largest impact. And at the time mm -hmm. it was really about education and telling people how this works. Um, and very much making the underlying implementation accessible to people. Um, but at the, over time, then more and more people got involved in it. And so um, we're like, cool, this is now covered. Let's move on to another thing that, um, where we can have a larger impact. And this is how we ended up in core development as well as research in programming languages and cryptography. Contributions to core proposals started in 2019. On your um, yeah, in terms of implementation, so for 004, we'd written a bunch of analysis on what it would mean for the network. And then 005 was the actual first proposal uh, where we contributed code. And then, of course, 006 now as well. And most likely 007 and sort of going forward from now on out um, will be involved in those as well. Right. And so the first uh, core upgrade came from Nomadic. And after that, when it started decentralizing to multiple firms, you became that second firm. So no matter uh, what became, am yeah. I saying this? <laughs> yeah, it was like true. Yeah, I, I mean, I, because I remember after uh, Babylon, uh, Awa wrote that article, which I thought was very tactful too. 
about how it was the first time that two firms worked together in a joint proposal. It's important sure. sort of to look at um, Tezos in the context of the wider industry. Um, and practically speaking, so most protocols haven't evolved all that much after launch. Um, due to that bubbling, it's incredible. Like when you look at sort of the absolute change that Tezos has undergone, it has already undergone more changes than Ethereum has in its last three years. Um, it has also undergone more changes than Bitcoin has so far. Um, and some people will argue, well, um, like hard money or uh, these protocols were perfect to begin with. But practically speaking, this seems to be very unlikely that the first thing that people came up with and that got deployed in the wild is the final thing that humanity will die with. Um, so to me, it seems absolutely paramount that you have continuous evolution, uh, which is why I find Tesla so fascinating um, because it's realistically speaking, the first platform that has built in continuous evolution and that is slowly starting to prove this, right? Because we not only had 004, then we have 005, now we're having 006. We will be having 007, 8, 9, 10. Um, and so I, I'm... I'm amazed to like how Tesla's will look like in two or three years, given that we can have sort of a steady stream of incremental upgrades to it. Right, completely. Yeah, and that's what drew me into Tesla's originally. I mean, that was my problem with other blockchain protocols. Uh, it was that you had all this forking, and a lot of people were looking at these forks as a great thing. It's a trade-off. You know, you can disagree with the way a certain blockchain project is going and then fork with others that are behind you and then make something else. At a certain point, there needs to be uh, some middle way. And it doesn't mean that it you lose. In fact, if you truly believe that you're right and then the, the project overall democratically decides to go another direction, it's not like anyone's going to forget. I mean... It'll show, the record will show. And if you were right, you will gain gravitas later on for future proposals, for future cycles, uh, for future upgrades to say, oh, well, we should have listened to this person before because that yeah. was the answer. So you actually get more out of it. And if you're wrong, well, then maybe you should be glad that it was defeated and saying, hey, sometimes I make mistakes. This democratic process was right. I mean, like, forks are cool because what we have had until now in the sort of outside of the blockchain industry is that you see very strong, strong platform lock-in, whether that is Facebook or Google or Gmail um, or AWS. It doesn't really matter. Um, but you are very much locked into those platforms once you start using because you don't own the data um, that is powering the service that you're actually using. Um, in blockchains, however, since all the data is publicly available, forks all of a sudden become an effective way at... Um, resolving sort of uh, if a large majority or if a large minority of people wants to do fundamentally something different, then they have the ability to take the data with them. I think the existing forks so far though, like the Ethereum classic forks, Bitcoin Cash and so on, to me they're like very uninteresting because they didn't fundamentally change like all that much. Like they right. didn't invent something new. They just like took a code base and like took a tiny detour Exactly. But they didn't make fundamental architectural choices. Um, I think on-chain governance is very good at establishing large majorities of sort of a large majority of the population wants to go with this. And due to that, we think this is probably a good idea. But the nice part is that if a substantial minority, let's say sort of 20, 30 percent 
disagree with something, they have to, they aren't locked into a specific platform. If people really strongly disagree, like if you have Brexit, you can have very clean forks, um, which I think is a lot better than what we currently have in these systems. Right. And I think uh, for those like small detail, for those disputes over small details about the future direction of a blockchain to fork and have a big project of forking after that, like when it was Bitcoin Cash, others, it's, I mean, on one level, it, I, I think those that are truly passionate about leaving at that point, it speaks to maybe an immaturity about the process or otherwise a frustration that maybe they felt, oh, there's nothing we could ever get done. And so there was something uh, frustrating about the way in which the governance was structured, that they felt there's no way we can ever change things and get them to the direction that we want to go, even though we have so many developers behind this or have any influence or sway. Um, which And also, uh, when you combine that with just the amount of money that's out there, it kind of shows that fork is a money grab. It's a quick yeah. money grab. Some people are behind it that are trying to get more money out of it, and then they succeeded. Um, and, and so I think there's something really cool about how even... Even Arthur, I mean, all he can really do is put a proposal out there and people can reject it, uh, you know? And of course, yep. it's Arthur, he's very influential and whatnot. You know, you, you take Ethereum and Vitalik talks about, he wants to work on Ethereum in a way and develop it in a way that it'll survive if he dies. Um, well, we're already there with Tezos. We were there from the beginning. I mean, I think Ethereum is beyond evolution. Like, um... I, I find it hard to believe that Ethereum will, uh, maybe they'll try, but I think it's going to be incredibly difficult to decide on a coherent place, like a goal to have in mind without either having a governance process or having someone lead the way. Um, so I think Ethereum will do fine without Vitalik actually. Um, mm. It may not evolve at all anymore though. Um, but this is the really cool thing about Tesla's governance and it's a, yeah, it was actually the first in the world for this, that you have the ability, um, like you have an actual fair governance mechanism, that it's not necessarily about how many, how many followers your people have on Twitter or how loud people are on Reddit, um, but that you have an actual documented voting process by which you can come to consensus about what you want to do. Um, I think that's really the key part of Tezos, actually. Um, this ability for a lot for uh, stakeholders to come to coherent decision uh, in some defined process. Right. And do you think Fidelik uh, has said a couple years ago now that he wants to switch everything over to proof of stake? Um, do you think that that would lead to attributes of the future governance evolution that would make it as opposed to maybe the current thing, which seems a bit... I guess you're saying it, it seems like it will plateau, in your opinion? I, like, Ethereum has taken the approach, in my opinion, that uh, so for Ethereum, the development roadmap is more of a step function. It's not a continuous evolution. It's more today we're in the Stone Age with Ethereum 1, and tomorrow with Ethereum 2, we uh, are traveling through uh, space, right? Um, there's no sort of clear progress how you get from the Stone Age to the space age. You just... One day are you you here and the next day you're there, um, and I'm not sure whether this is like ideally adapted to the real world, um, like whether people want to depend on such a platform. I think I I might prefer the Tesla model where sort of continuous incremental improvements 
Um, but doing them over a long period of time leads to compounding effects and sort of like compounding interest. And I think that's really the key strength that Tesla has. Not that we need to get to sharding as our next big thing, but there are a bunch of intermediate steps that we can take right now um, that sort of pave the way towards some um, future goal. Right. And I think a lot of that is also even just the culture of the community that evolves to continually be progressive and, and work as this large proverbial hive mind uh, organism, but also be open to new entrants coming in. Um, things, and these are things that are off-chain, things like Agora, you know. Yeah. And I actually, in my opinion, one of the biggest risks to any of these platforms is uh, inability to integrate changes. Um, right. I think the biggest risk that, the, uh, that any of the existing platforms face is not that they evolve too much. It's that they stop evolving. Um, because practically speaking, none of what you currently have is all that useful. Like if you take all blockchains, if you take all public decentralized blockchains um, in the world right now together, you probably can't have enough raw throughput to even power the city of Berlin, like the commerce in the city of Berlin. Mm. Um, so I think one of the biggest risks is that we become complacent and say, well, we like the current state. We don't want to take more. We don't want to adapt to more changes. Uh, let's just stay where we are. Because I think this is really how we start falling behind relatively quickly in comparison to some of the new en entrants, right? Like there are a bunch of protocols that are being developed in private, like Nier, like Solana, like Polkadot, um, that when they launch, they will be sufficiently further um, than most of the ecosystem is right now. And it's really, you have to remain at the forefront to be relevant. Right. But it's that, that, being that much further for a lot of uh, these projects, um, it's just that being further ahead is not relevant for the time period. Uh, for, you know, like someone can say, we tote this much transactions per second, but it just doesn't matter right now. Um, and that's, I think, better lean thinking to, to not chase vanity metrics and be open towards change, be open towards adaptation, make sure that um, it's becoming future proof in that regard, yep. even if those vanity metrics are slower to be implemented to, to tote in the beginning, it'll get there. And I think that that's one of the best things about having a united community that you don't have to worry about, well, the people that were really into that project that we were counting on to make us as strong as this other thing, this other project in that regard, those people left and they forked. So what do we do? Yeah, We don't have to worry about that. It's all, they're all going to yeah. stay in. It's all, we're going to get there. It's, it's going to adapt, it'll get there. And when it does, it'll be much nicer. Also because we can learn from the successes and mistakes of other projects too. Oh yeah, copy and steal as much as you can. Like the Chinese model works. Um, there's no reason to reinvent everything yourself. Uh, it's like a ridiculous proposition. And a lot of blockchain projects have this, um, that no one wants to take existing stuff and integrate it. Um, but like, this is all open source guys. There's no right. point in spending six months on doing your own thing of something when you can just like integrate something else in two weeks. What are some things that you've seen in other blockchain products that in other blockchain projects that have been inspiring towards changes in Tezos or things maybe you want to see? Um, I think one really cool feature um, 
so well let's start sort of the very long term with sharding and mm-hmm. sort of how do we get some more scalability going in these systems uh, for the long long t- future um, i think that's too early to say um, no one has really solved this yet a bunch of people are working on trying to figure this out uh, we should probably just wait another one or two years see which sharding solutions actually work in practice and then implement them <laughs> this seems to me much easier uh, and you probably don't have to spend too much time on this right now uh, except not make stupid choices right now that will prevent us from implementing useful charting features in the future. Um, the other very practical example, I think, is the ability to rotate keys um, without losing delegation. And Polkadot has a quite nice model there where you can change your consensus key under the hood uh, without having to have everyone re-delegate to you. Um, Cosmos does not have this yet either. And it's a real problem, especially for large public papers, because Maybe when you started, uh, you sort of thought, well, this is just going to be a tiny side thing. I'm not going to pay too much attention to how this, I set this up. And all of a sudden, you have a thousand roles. And now you're like, huh, I wonder how, secure, how securely I generated my keys. Uh, but you can't change anymore. So I think really having the ability to rotate consensus keys is going to be quite important. Um, and this is something that Polkadot is doing well. Um, okay. What else? Yeah, and on that note... Uh, so, so how, uh, on a practical level for a user, I mean, how would that Baker key change work? Uh, this is a question that was asked, uh, is it an automated swap to a new set of keys? Uh, I think, uh, this yeah. goes, there are other questions that are kind of similar to this. I think it's more about like user, um, from a user point of view, the level of efficiency, um, and people wanting to kind of see that narrative in their head. Yeah. So from a technical level, what actually the way we're currently thinking about this is, okay, uh, there's only a limited set of bakers. So the set of bakers is bounded, right? Let's mm-hmm. say it's bounded at somewhere around 500 right now. So I think last time I checked, it was 431 individual bakers that are currently participating, potentially participating in census. Um, but the set of delegators is unbounded. Um, what this practically means in the current implementation all the delegators are pointing to directly the consensus key, the current TESI 1 or TESI 2 or TESI 3 address, um, which means that currently you can't change your consensus key because you need to, in order to change your consensus key, you would need to iterate over um, an unbounded set of uh, delegators and update that reference, right? You can imagine it like a pointer. You need to potentially for an infinite number of delegators, you need to update the pointer to the, every time you want to change the consensus key. So that obviously doesn't work due to compu- computation complexity. Um, so instead, the implementation or the idea that we're currently working on is that we introduce a wrapper structure around this, so a baking account. Um, we're currently thinking of calling it, giving it the prefix SG1, so an SG1 account um, that then contains inside of it um, the actual consensus key so that all the delegations can point to it to the SG1 account. And when I want to change my consensus key, I only have to change the key within the SG1 structure, but that does not require me to update all the the unbounded set of delegators. Um, So this is currently how this would work. Um, One of the downsides, oh, this is potentially uh, the way to do it, but the downside is that, and it's not, it's a short-term downside, it's that, Clients like wallets would have to start understanding how to that delegations don't happen directly to TESI ones anymore, but rather to SG ones. Um, 
but this is sort of a relatively simple fix um, and simple upgrade. Cool. And on that note, since we're talking about programmable staking, programmable baking, um, so after your talk on programmable staking at TQ in New York City, Jeff Bjorsal, who's working with me on the project, uh, came up to you and I came up to you and then he asked about what we were doing and if it would require a protocol upgrade to implement. Definitely kind of some amount of, and I'm surprised that this hasn't happened actually. Um, what you can absolutely do is you can have a single pooling contract that people delegate into that then delegate, that then transfers its assets to um, sort of child contracts where the mm -hmm. child contracts delegate to different bakers. Uh, and this is currently possible in the current model. Um, so you have one large overall pool contract and then you have a bunch of child contracts underneath and then the pool contract just manages the allocations within the child contract and, the, and how the child, child contracts are delegated to which baker. Um, so, so this would be the very basic version that would work right now. So that's an iteration of big pool that could be implemented and that would not require a protocol upgrade? Uh, no, this works right now. This requires, uh, you just have to check that it fits within the current gas limits. Um, but if it doesn't, then then you'd require a protocol upgrade for the gas limits. But that should be like, this yeah. is something we're working on all the time anyway, with Nomadic on just like making the underlying execution more efficient so that we can run more complex smart contracts. Because we started off very conservative here. Like uh, the current gas costs are set very high. Delegation services, they get too large for one person to manage. And for one person to do everything and have the keys, it's not really a kind of a long-term solution. If these are businesses and then they can evolve into becoming diverse different types of businesses to which staking uh, with someone doesn't even necessarily mean something as linear um, as the the very minimalist uh interpretation of it is, uh, but as we evolve a larger Tezos economy with DeFi and all the applications coming on it, uh, many different things can be done uh, that you'd need generals, you'd need people who can uh, hold the keys in this regard for this aspect and hold the keys in this regard for another aspect. Um, that is uh, the problem that you addressed. Yes? I want to I, mean, sure I would argue that, yeah, if you're setting up, um, if you're thinking of setting up a bakery, um, so at small scale, um, key management doesn't really matter yet. Um, it's like you, you're usually just like one person and you trust yourself to hold these keys. Um, but as you get larger and people start depending on you as a business, right? People delegate you and they do expect that they get receive rewards every three days. You may want to start hiring people to deal with the infrastructure, to deal with payouts. Um, you may want to be able to take a holiday and still are able to vote. And so you want to start separating some of the responsibilities to um, maybe also not to just individuals, but rather to groups of people, right? Maybe you want to have um, like your CFO and your CEO should have the ability to spend from your bakery. Uh, and maybe only one of you three needs to uh, sign or to vote. Um, and maybe only three out of three are able to upgrade or change the consensus key. Um, so these are all kinds of things that where as bakeries become more professional and uh, users have more of, have higher expectations towards them, they need to grow as operations. And currently it's very hard to um, sort of scale bakeries simply because you, like the circle of trust all evolves around one key. Right. Um, 
Yeah. Like if I have an issue with my Amazon order, it didn't come in or something, and then I call up customer service, it's not Bezos getting on the line and like, okay, we'll give you a refund. Um, it's, it wouldn't make any sense. It's a large organization. You have somebody very, very low level, but is nonetheless entrusted uh, with that ability for uh, very practical reasons. And that's, that's fine. Um, there's a delegation of powers there. Yeah. Um, and it's also just like risky, right? Um, exchanges are traditionally very large targets because they hold crypto and hotkeys. Um, and so will Baker's. Like if, if Tesla's takes off and 10Xs, Baker's are the largest targets because they hold tons of security deposits mm -hmm. on single use keys or like on uh, single keys, not single use. Um, and maybe it's possible to protect your consensus keys by putting them in data centers on AWS, but things like voting that need to happen relatively frequently, you need relatively quick access to them. And you probably don't just want to have one key for it because taking over one key is relatively simple. Like there's a reason why none of the large organizations hold large amounts of funds in single keys. They all hold it in multi six. And um, like right. the idea with baking accounts can really be that, like why are we depriving bakers of the ability to protect themselves like everyone else is trying to protect themselves by using multi six. Right. And especially for something so important that could have a huge impact. There's a reason why you need two keys to launch missiles from a submarine. Same, yeah. same reasons apply. <laughs> what I'm primarily trying to address with Bake Pools, and that is the capacity of bakers uh, and the inability for those who maybe don't want to be self-baking, baking on their own, like an exchange. They just want to keep custody and they want to have this service of staking because, of course, they need to have that for all of their clients. Uh, but they really, they can't outsource. There's nobody who has, there's no single baker that has the uh, ability to capacitate all of that. They'd have to divvy it up amongst multiple bakers, but then that becomes even more of a management challenge that it just makes sense to have one baker. Um, so, yeah, I think there are, I mean, there are sort of multiple problems with uh, large organizations um, wanting to bake. Um, I think one of them is currently that um, Coinbase will not like be willing to delegate to someone else because they have zero assurances that the rewards will be paid. So Coinbase will have to spend tons of time trying to figure out whether they're being paid correctly. Right. Um, and so I think making something like that trustless would be massively helpful uh, for people, for large exchanges to maybe not self-bake, but instead delegate to someone else um, because right. you remove a lot of management overhead. The other thing is that currently exchanges, like the current delegation model um, is very capitalist centric to some extent, right? Like due to the security deposit requirements, um, people with lots of money have uh, a clear advantage in running large bakers. Um, so, like, and you can see this, right? You have Coinbase, Kraken, Gate, um, and, who, and Binance um, in like the top 10 in terms of bakers, and then you have a bunch of VCs and the VC, Polychain, um, Airfoil, and I think a couple of other VCs in sort of the top 15 Tesla bakers. Um, and like Cryptium Labs and uh, Tesla's Capital are a clear exception here, and Happy Tesla's as well, actually. They're a clear exception, they're not the rule. Um, and this is mostly because uh, currently people that already hold large amounts of XZ 
are uh, in a favorable position uh, to run large bakers in comparison to sort of bootstrap bakers that are just setting up. Um, maybe one of the examples could be someone like Znode, someone like POS Bakers, um, sort of small competent teams that just want to, that don't necessarily have huge access to huge amounts of capital, but that are very competent in running and securing a network. Um, so ideally, you want to have a model where it's possible for these guys to compete with people like Coinbase um, without becoming Coinbase, right? Right. Um, right. And, and I, I think um, this yeah, is the, the other possible design that we're exploring with Programmable Staking, um, where people can have uh, can have del risk delegation effectively. Uh, so delegation like Cosmos or Polkadot um, or Iris or most neural networks will have this where delegation is slashable. And I mean, this is right now effectively the case. You have self-bond that is slashable. Um, but in order to add to that self-bond, you need to have other people give you custody of their funds. And due to that, this becomes a real challenge for small bakers because they have a hard time getting access to enough funds. Um, and I think something where we're adding um, a new type of delegation where you can have, it's a possible design that may address this. Um, it's something to discuss, and I think Agora is a perfect forum for this. Um, right. And yeah, then it's uh, up to the community to sort of decide which way you want to go with. Uh, I can only sort of present op like options and opinions that, uh, from what I've seen work in the ecosystem or I think may work. Right. And I mean, I think uh, in expanding the network to go from a few hundred nodes to thousands let alone tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, wherever you want to end up in the future, that incentivization, the financial incentive of, yes, you can run a delegation service and have a passive income in the form of fees. Uh, and so it's not just you're going with inflation. That, that's always been a draw. That's always, that's been uh, definitely the draw to, of what's gotten the network as large as it is now. Uh, so maintaining that ability in whatever form uh, is important going forward, would you say? Uh, absolutely. Um, I think, so um, practically, I'd be massively in favor of having more like a thousand bakers, maybe 2000. Uh, currently, we're somewhat limited by um, currently available database, techno uh, not technology, but currently available database implementations. Um, that sort of make it not necessarily feasible to scale to thousands of validators. But I think, mm -hmm. uh, generally speaking, it's a good idea. Right, yeah. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how this plays into potential future upgrades around um, BFT additions, like Tenement BFT or some finality gadget based on top of Tenement, um, where how do you handle this? How do you handle fast block times and having finality while also having um, a large set of nodes that can participate in consensus? It'd be interesting to see. Right. Um, there's like a lot of design space left. Yeah. And I think a, a slower growth approach is important because we don't want to chase some vanity metric with that either. We don't want to have to tote more nodes. I mean, to show that there's a strength of the network is very important, but, uh, and, and to show that it's participatory and decentralized and how, how uh, strong it is on that level, that's very important. But Chasing a number is not is not the goal. Uh, it's important to have growth and then consolidation for that growth. Uh, the community supports one another. It builds resources to help people. Um, you know, uh, you could spend a day, I guess, emailing every baker one by one, 
uh, you won't be able to do that when you have thousands and thousands or tens yeah. of thousands of nodes. Um, actually, so are, one those that have one contact information out, I should say. <laughs> one interesting example that I just thought of is actually what happened with the Interchain Foundation, which is the foundation um, behind the Cosmos Network. Um, so what they do is they delegate to small bakers, uh, to small validators in Cosmos, um, because due to the fact that in Cosmos everything is stashable, which is probably also not a good idea from a regulatory perspective. Um, the foundation, the ICF, the Interchain Foundation, has the ability to delegate to someone that only has one atom at, to their name. Um, and But they can sort of talk to the person, whatever process they have behind it, I don't know, but they can sort of make sure that it's the most competent SRE from Google that is running that one atom uh, validator. And then they can go and delegate some amount of tokens to him. Um, because he doesn't have this capacity problem. He's not then forced to raise tons of VC money in order to cover security deposits. Um, so I think having some ability for slashable delegation may actually uh, help decentralization to some extent because it would allow someone like the TF to delegate to other people without them being over-delegated immediately. Right. And I think it's a good indicator when those that do abstain or vote pass on voting, um, it, it's something they, like baking is something that needs to be done, um, but it's not something where they're kind of full spectrum being a baker, trying to be a baker in the sense that an independent self baker uh, would, yeah. where they're involved in the governance process, they're involved, uh, they're running a delegation service if they like, uh, and then they're, they're running the technical, technical implementation and doing all the upgrades. Um, it's it's very different when you're a large organization. Your needs aren't as aren't the same, um, and in a good yeah. way that I think helps decentralization. If if those large organizations get to do what they want, which is to to uh, outsource as a broad sort in the broad yeah, exactly. sense. Yeah, and I think one of the other important points there is um, so I, I saw somewhere that one of the concerns the TF also has, I think it was on Riot actually is that if they delegate to um, smaller bakers, uh, if they delegate to other bakers, they lose the ability to uh, vote pass, right? So you're sort of skewing the voting path. Um, hmm. This is something else I've been actually thinking about is uh, vote overriding. So allowing delegators to um, maybe for now just at the level of a single role, but allowing delegators to override the baker's vote. Um, because that, again, would enable large organizations to delegate to smaller bakers without the fear of losing control of the governance process. By right. default, the large organizations, the delegations would just inherit um, the votes of their smaller um, bakers that they delegate to. But then if they fundamentally disagree with some, like if one of their bakers voted for something crazy, they can always themselves overwrite that vote. Right. Um, or, or they might want that service uh, for their clients. Like if you're an exchange and it's okay, we exactly. want... I mean, yeah, the same yeah. applies. Like Coinbase currently has to vote pass due to regulatory concerns that they have. Um, but I think they'd be fairly happy letting their custody clients vote on their behalf. And, and speaking with them uh, back last last October, not last October, October before last, before they started baking, um, uh, their custody department said, we, we want to give our clients the ability to have to vote in as much as they would have the ability to stake. Like it's just as important to our custody clients. So they want to get it right. I think uh, it, it all comes down to uh, 
serving the interests, uh, making an option available. And then customers will demand that of their custodians. And then the custodians, if they want to compete, they would need to stay competitive by applying those changes. There was some question on what does Carthage mean for clients? Whether Carthage implies any changes for uh, for world developers. Um, there, there were changes to gas limits. Um, so depending on how you build your application, uh, it may require you to move or update hard-coded values. Um, but it's hard to say, but um, right, because I don't know everyone's implementations. But generally speaking, the updates in client slash wallet should be minimal. Um, and there's a very clear change log on um, tesos.gitlab.io, um, which I guess you can post in the show notes or something. Um, For but sure. of course, everyone should double check that their infrastructure works on the Carthage net. Um, like it's hard for me to tell for the universe, for the entire universe, whether interest, whether some hard-coded constants or not will break clients. Um, so I would heavily recommend that board developers and um, sort of infrastructure providers test their infrastructure on the Carthage net and see that it's still working. I think this is a good question. If somebody wants to get involved in protocol development in in development in the core, how do they get started? What do they do? Um, well, you should have uh, some background in some functional programming language or something like Rust. So Haskell, Camel, Rust, uh, those are all good starting points. Um, so having the ability to program is important, um, it's, at least if you want to actually modify the core protocol. Um, after that, I would suggest joining the developer Slack. And I don't have the link handy, but I'm sure you can also put it in the show notes. And then it's really just start reading the code base, commenting on issues, reviewing other people's merge requests. Generally speaking, most of the, actually, no, all the protocol development that happens um, between crypto and nomadic is just happening out in the open on GitLab. Um, sometimes it happens on GitLab slash nomadic slash labs slash Tezos, sometimes on gitlab.com slash cryptium labs slash Tezos. Um, most of, actually, all the time it happens on a branch called Proto Proposal which should always then be the default branch um, on the repository. And yeah, then just start commenting on merge requests and issues. Uh, start opening your own merge request. Um, maybe open your own issue if you have a good idea for the protocol. Um, or just uh, come up on Slack and talk to people. Have you seen activity on that end, that people wanting to get involved and um, being a part of a proposal? Um, there has been some, um, specifically from people from people that want to build um, sort of layer two solutions mm-hmm. uh, with regards to um, adding some new cryptography to the protocol and also some changes. A lot of the uh, changes to Mickelson 005 were driven by demand from um, language developers, um, but that's not enough, let's say this way. If you are interested in doing protocol engineering, Please feel free. We're very happy to welcome new people. Um, yeah, we don't bite, so please come along. Do you think that development can become too decentralized, just like an organization can get too large? So maybe if we had a thousand core developers tomorrow, uh, we would not be able to handle this in terms of process. Right. Um, I think there could 
that could create some sort of a catastrophic meltdown, but would require that we spend the next couple of months just designing decent processes to deal with a thousand people. Um, but if you look at something like Linux, like the Linux kernel, mm-hmm. it has thousands of developers that are active on developing it. I don't think that open source communities uh, can get too large. Like mm-hmm. at some point, you probably have to introduce some hierarchical structure where different people work in different parts and different people are experts in different parts. Um, but generally speaking, if you build the right process, you should be able to handle large amounts of people. And I think we are currently really trying to bootstrap this process of enabling more and more people to participate in core development. Awesome. Yeah, and, and Linux didn't start that way, of course. I mean, it was No, I mean, small. this is the thing. Like, if Linux had started with a 1,000 people, it would have died. Yeah. Um, because Dinos Tobol would have gone like, the fuck do all these people want? I don't yeah. like them. Um, <laughs> so, but like, it organically evolved in Linux, and that's also how we got Git, because at some point, you need a management tool to manage one more people and yeah. contributions from one more people. Um, so, luckily, we already have Git. We start as one cell, and then two, and then four, so on and so forth, trillions and trillions of cells. And then eventually those cells become specialized, but still nonetheless part of the same organism that work cooperatively with one another. Yeah. Oh, by the way, before I forget, um, on the core dev team, we have a third core dev team, Dai Lambda in Japan. Uh, yeah, they're in Japan, they're working on a new storage backend, I think. What's um, their name again? Uh, Dai Lambda. Um, and they've been very active in reviewing other people's code and just helping out with core dev and also shell development. Very cool. Um, I kind of like this. Um, how, do you, how do you come up with ideas? Do you meditate every day for hours? Um, I spend a lot of time thinking about decentralized systems and distributed systems and how to improve them and how to make the economics work out in favor and how to make them more secure. Um, so it's what I do most of my day. Um, and it's a passion, right, it's obsession. Like, yeah, like right. And also the other thing is right now, the thing is that there's just a lot of low hanging fruit that can be improved upon. Um, like we don't have to currently build a charting solution. We can start by making the user experience better, improving the gas cost, um, like allowing people to change their consensus keys. These, um, I think a lot of the more research topics will get interesting in a couple of years from now. Um, but yeah, also meditation really helps. I'm not kidding. I would highly recommend it. I'd recommend it to anybody. Meditation All changed songs. my life. Yeah. Heavily recommend for everyone. Very, very important. Definitely. Meditation exercise. All right. Adrian Brink, thank you so much. No problem. Uh, yeah. Glad to be here. And what's and the best way to people to somewhere. contact you? You can find me on Twitter at at Adrian underscore Brink. And if someone from Twitter is listening, the at Adrian Brink is not taken, but it's blocked because it was previously used. I would uh, heavily appreciate if I could get hold of that handle. Because okay. I have at Adrian, like Adrian Brink is one word on almost every platform except on Twitter. Right. So Tezonians, if you want to help Adrian out, write your tickets to Twitter and I think a, a number of tickets uh, in support of that. It might even get you a blue check mark. Who knows? Yeah, that'd be also cool. It's like, wow, this guy's really yeah, it important. Seems, it seems very random to how those are given out. I've looked awesome. into it and someone was like, this is like not a coherent process that is being followed. <laughs> they did say they are trying to, to change that. I think they were going to get rid of all the, um, 
uh, inactive usernames. Yeah, uh, they're supposed to in there. December, but they delayed it. I'm waiting for that. Uh, anyway, otherwise, I'm also on Slack. I'm always on Slack or Riot um, or Telegram. It's usually at Adrian Brink. Awesome. Okay. Thanks so much. Adrian, have a great You're weekend. You're welcome. You too. So that's the episode. My name is Kevin Morabi. You can follow me on Twitter at, at @kmorabi. You can also follow the show at Tezcast on Telegram and Twitter. Go to tezcast.com or tezospodcast.com. See you next time.